Thank you so much, uh, dear mamas. I've got all kinds of sounds going on. I think all the lawnmowers and uh, uh, edgers and everything are rolling. It's, it's nice weather here in Washington, D.C., so I, I hope you're not hearing planes. <laughs> A big old plane just blew overhead. Can you hear that? I'm just curious. Could you hear the big plane? Okay, very good, very good. Well, it is, I think it's uh, like 76 degrees, almost 80 in Washington, D.C. today. It's a beautiful day. It's Memorial Day weekend. Uh, how are you going to honor our fallen soldiers who have fought so valiantly in our wars? Are you going to have a barbecue? There's a big parade in Washington, D.C. All the branches of the military will be represented as they come down Constitutional Avenue from the Capitol all the way to the White House. It's fabulous. If you're going to be in town, are you going to go to the grave sites or take your flags, put your flags out? Um, I, I would recommend on, on this weekend or on Memorial Day uh, to, to read some stories of patriotic men and women who have served our country in the cottage meeting series that we teach on Thursday evenings. Uh, there's that wonderful story of Nathan Hale, that young 21-year-old boy who was a spy in uh, the Revolutionary War for George Washington, and he gave his life, and he said, I, I only wish I had 10,000 lives to give to my country. And so that's a great story that you could read to your children, or that wonderful little 12-minute YouTube on the story behind the Star-Spangled Banner, how the bodies of the men and young boys helped kept that flag upright uh, that night that the English were bombarding Fort McHenry waiting on Baltimore Harbor there. That would be a wonderful little 13 minute clip to show as well. And we, we showed that last week and last Thursday's lesson. And I always, I've, I've sent that out to my kids and shown it in my home for years, but keep your hankies close. It's so inspirational. So we are on the 11th of our 16 week class. Congratulations. We are well over half uh, halfway through. We are in seminar three. Let's see our first slide. Tressie, we're uh, talking about the assaults on the Charter of Freedom today. The Charter of Freedom is another word for it, the Constitution. So some of these assaults are going to sound familiar because we begin to talk about why certain amendments were egregious against the Constitution. So this is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let's see the next slide, Tressie. So we're in seminar number three the attacks on the charter of freedom the constitution here's my little book these little books are my treasures i hope you have invested in them i think for 50 dollars you can get all four books or they're 18 dollars singly but this is what i have taught out of uh to my children and when i've had to you know speak in the community or when i needed to go back and bone up on things that i wasn't quite sure about this is where i went i would write notes and to me it's the most condensed explanation of where we have come from to where we are today and what is the solution. And you know I love seminar four that we will pick up in two weeks because it is how we're going to heal the, you know, the attacks of the, on the constitution and heal the unhinging uh, of you know, the attacks on God and family and uh, education and so forth. And so um, anyways, I, I think, you know, oftentimes the seminar three sends us to the closet with the tub of ice cream <laughs> because it just feels that heavy and that dark and that bad. But, you know, I always say we don't know how to fix something if we don't know how it got broke. All right. And so we don't need to lose hope, but you know, it's not, it's not meant to discourage us, but it's meant to help us understand where we need to target 
you know, what we need to talk about uh, in repairing. So I, I think we all know that we are in a war for our children, for the hearts of our children and our, our posterity, our rising generations, and, and really for our neighborhoods, our communities, and our nation. And so, so many people get discouraged and they just want to be doom and gloom. And I always say, look, mama, let's see the full view, Tressie. We don't need to take uh, our counsel from our fears because in that beautiful scripture in Timothy, God said, look, I've not given you the spirit of fear. Fear does not come from God. It comes from down below. Rather, he's given us power and love and a sound mind. So this is why we're, we study the word because these words get in us, right? We have power. We have love within us. We have a sound mind. So I always say fresh courage, take our God is a mighty and awesome God. We know he's going to prevail as long as we are on his side. And so as we do, as we continue to learn and continue to look to the heavens, it helps us to stay anchored in hope. And when mama is anchored in hope, you are now a beacon to those around you who are doom and gloom. So instead of speaking negativity, you can speak hopefulness, all right? You can speak truth. You can speak principle. Okay, let's see the next slide. So going from, from that pep talk to these dudes, these dark dudes, uh, Horace Mann, we've been talking about Horace Mann and John Dewey. These men were known as, you know, the father of public uh, education. And remember, they were godless men. They were atheists. They were secularists. Horace Mann came first. He studied uh, Karl Marx, and then John Dewey was also a disciple of Horace Mann and Karl Marx. And, and these men wanted to diminish the influence of mother and God, because that's how you can begin to control and to doctrinate. And so they took that one room schoolhouse concept and separated families, you know, and they wanted, and as you separate them into elementaries, junior highs, junior uh, high schools and high schools, you now make peer pressure, their friend groups more important. And you can create this idea that there's a generation gap that your parents don't understand. They're outdated, they're old fashioned. And then of course, in the 1950s, as these, these seeds of, of secularism are being planted within the school systems, because good heavenly days, these men were teaching the, you know, the future college presidents and deans of schools at the Columbia School for Teachers in New York City. John Dewey was, he lived in 92. I think he died in, in the 1950s. And so in the 1950s also is when Russia beat us to space. Remember with that Russian satellite called the Sputnik? And it was during the Cold War. So we were so afraid of the Russians. You know, it was better to be dead than red. And so, and, and we will learn next week how some of the technology that got that Russian satellite was American technology. We helped them. But, but that's how these master planners and these godless, you know, reformers in America use that as a means to scare the parents into thinking, oh, we're falling behind. We need to teach more advanced curriculum. Therefore, maybe we should take morality and God and, and history out and put more, you know, advanced sciences and math classes. Now, our founding fathers knew that you behave according to how you believe. And so this is why they wanted morality and religion, along with knowledge to be taught in the school systems, because that was the only way we were going to maintain the type of government uh, of the people by the people, if we remain morally strong and virtuous, because uh, a government by the voice of the people is based on natural law, godly law, 
So we had to be godly people to maintain this kind of, of government. So as we see in the 1900s, this anti-God movement is, is going to be working in the school systems. And then, and that was kind of the impetus and right for the Supreme Court then in the 50s and 60s to begin to pull, you know, school prayer out of school, to, to pull Bible reading out of school. And, and of course, we know you're never as smart when you're not operating the spirit of God to help you discern right from wrong. And so test scores have increasingly gone down since the Sputnik launching. And, um, and so you can just kind of feel that there's just general sense of crisis hanging over America now. And who has been tampering with the soul of America? It says here on the first page of our readings today that many people in America have, have come to understand that that most of the economic and the political problems plaguing the US is a direct result of the federal government indulging in practices that are entirely socialistic in their objectives and completely opposite to that success formula that the founding fathers put forth. So who is, who is to blame then? Well, some people are offended when uh, we say we are to blame. If you want to find the devil who is responsible for us becoming a socialistic looking sounding country, then just go and look in the mirror because we're all responsible. If Washington had been making us, if, if Washington has been making us more socialistic, it's because the citizens have been asking Washington DC to do so. And I know, you know, I think, oh no, not me, but I'm, I'm telling you when the, the stimulus, stimulus checks during COVID started coming out and, and, uh, um, my sister was getting child tax credits during uh, COVID for some reason. I, I, she got $300 plus $250, $550 every month for a period of about six months during COVID. And, and to be honest with you, when the Supreme Court or when President Biden said, we're going to pay off all the student loans, two of my daughters have just small little student loans. And they perked up and got real excited, like, oh, yeah, OK, all right. And so I think, and, and then I know in the last two years, I've seen San Francisco and uh, uh, a city in Illinois saying they're going to make reparations to uh, Black citizens who have uh, either suffered discrimination or their descendants <laughs> suffered discrimination. The city in Illinois put aside $10 million over the course of 10 years to, to be distributed to about 400,000 black people for discrimination or anything their ancestors and so you, you know i dare say that you, you know our willingness to accept all the goodies and the offerings make us a part of uh, you know a straying from what made our nation so great and of course we include in there these multinational corporations and the big banks and the federal reserve and the organized farm lobbies and big labor and the uh, na uh, national education association and the big cities and the little cities and all the special interest groups uh, trying to get something for which the constitution and the free enterprise system really strictly forbade. So we've gone from a people's law of all power and the people to a kind of a ruler's law mentality with, well, whoever controls the money rules. And this has been going on gradually and not so gradually in our lifetime, but really from about the 1900s to where we are now. And, uh, and, and we can pinpoint a few of the key problems, which we will today. One of them was that, you know, the 16th amendment, which gave 
it was passed in 1913, which gave the federal government the right to go directly into our households and to, to institute the federal income tax. Before then, it was the states that were to determine how its citizens were going to be taxed in order to make up the state's share of the federal budget. Okay, but in 1913, when the federal government began to gather all kind of money by individual income taxes, it began to grow uh, the coffers of the federal government, particularly the executive branch. So that's problem number one. And, uh, and then we saw the 17th Amendment, which weakened the ability for the uh, senators to protect the state, that kind of horizontal, not horizontal, vertical check and balance. The senator was kind of standing on that wall from a over uh, encroaching and reaching federal government into the states. Well, the 17th Amendment got, got rid of that check and balance, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But that's another one of the problems. And then we're going to talk about how the um, we established the Federal Reserve. Oh, 1913, bad things happened in 1913. Uh, and so the Federal Reserve began to issue um, uh, people fiat money and fix the value uh, thereof not based on gold and silver that had been predicated in the constitution. And also we began to set up, you know, with all this money we are gathering from uh, income tax, we began to set up the federal social security programs. And instead of, you know, the preamble clause to the constitution uh, talks about this general welfare that the country the government is responsible for the general welfare, the general well-being of our nation. The courts uh, in uh, 1936, the Butler case said, oh, that general welfare includes anything that they think should be fixed. So we began to target specific problems that the federal government did that was intended for the states to take care of. And so, and, and then we also will see next week, we'll talk about, so these are, the primary attacks on the constitution uh, and that have that have caused our door to kind of unhinge now and lastly next week we'll talk about our involvement in foreign uh, wars um, and centralizing power in the executive branch so we could we could become start becoming the policeman to countries and nations around the world. So instead of being a light on the hill, like our founding fathers, we're now policing the world and we have a lot of enemies because of that. And we'll talk more about that uh, next week. But so you can see as we make these observations that the majority of the problems that we face today have come because we have we begin to walk away and abandon uh, the principles set forth in the constitution with new amendments and, and courts getting involved and and uh, superseding parts of what the founding fathers gave us. And so if um, from here on out, we're going to kind of take a peek at American history over the past hundred years, okay, to get us to where we are now. So let's see this next slide. So we're on attacks on the constitution itself. Let's see the next slide, Tressie, let's see, okay. So the founders expected the constitution to endure forever. They felt that they had discovered and restored the eternal natural law principles, which would be a blessing to all mankind for the ages to come. And they really felt like, you know, what they came up with uh, over that four months in Philadelphia was struck off by the hand of God. 
And there has been a concerted effort over the last hundred years to say otherwise, that it is outdated, that it's a living document, that it needs to change with its with the with the times. So the founders believed that the perpetuation of the Constitution depended on two things: that we follow it, okay, follow it precisely the way it was written, according to its original intent. All right. Not that you know it's living, breathing, and it changes with the times. I even hear good patriotic people say, yes, the Constitution should change as society changes. I mean, it was John Adams himself who said this Constitution was written for, uh, it, it, there was 3 million people at the time the Constitution was written, but he said it was written to govern 300,000 because it pertains to human nature and human nature never changes. There needs to be restrictions and checks and balances on power. And that's what the constitution did. And secondly, they said that um, we needed to be very deliberate and careful if we were to change it, okay? Because every time we change it, it's the potential to weaken or destroy you know, the restrictions, the chains of the federal government that the constitution specifies. And, and we have to remember every amendment that we've had since amendment number 12 has either superseded or changed an, an existing uh, law uh, in the constitution. And so, you know, we know that, that amendments 13, 14, and 15 all had to came after the civil war abolishing you know, uh, slavery, 14, giving black citizens all the rights of everyone else. We do know fourth, the 14th amendment though was poorly written. And so people, the courts have just had a heyday in misinterpreting and misapplying that 14th amendment. Even so with the debt ceiling right now, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then the 15th amendment gave black citizens the right to vote. But after that, Amendments 16 through 27 came in the 1900s, and some of those amendments have completely uh, changed the intent uh, of the Constitution. Certainly, Amendments 16 and 17 did. So let's see the next slide. George Washington, when he talked about being able to change the amendment, he said, let it be corrected by an amendment, the Constitution, in the way in which the Constitution designates. So if we're going to change the Constitution, the fifth article says two-thirds of the Congress has to agree to the change, and then three-fourths of the state legislatures, legislatures uh, have to approve of, of the change. Or two-thirds of the states apply for an application to change the constitution and three fourths of the state legislators have to approve the changes. So you can see it's very difficult. They wanted it to be very difficult to change uh, the constitution. And then George Washington says, but let there be no change by usurpation. What do you think he meant by usurpation? For through this in one instance may be the instrument of good. It is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. Okay. Usurpation. There you go. Usurpation comes in the form of today executive orders, mandates from regulatory agencies under the executive branch. It comes from judicial legislation, the Supreme Court or the courts making law through the bench, okay? That is what he considered usurpation, changing the constitution through those means. And he warned that is the means of destroying the government. 
All right. And so by the by the close of the 19th century, there began to be this uh, attack on the relevance of the Constitution. Okay, now we've been a country almost what 120 years, and and we saw it uh, especially an attack on. Um, let's see the next uh, slide, Tressy, on this whole notion of separation of powers. It was attacked by many scholars and political philosophers. Woodrow Wilson being one of them. Woodrow Wilson uh, was a um, head of the Department of Political Science. At, for Princeton University before he became our uh, 28th president of the United States. And so he was critical of this doctrine of separation of, uh, of powers, uh, checks and balances amongst the um, branches. And, uh, and so we begin to see, let's see the next slide, in the 1900s, senators coming out and talking about this Senator uh, Clark from Pennsylvania. He said, uh, what did he say? I have no hesitation in stating my deep conviction that the legislatures of America, local, state, and national are presently the greatest menace to the successful operation of the democratic process. The executive should be strengthened at the expense of the legislature. Surely we have reached the point where we can say that Jefferson was wrong, that the government is not best which governs the least. And Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said something to that effect too when she was a justice on the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, they were wanting bigger government, stronger executives. And, and when you have a stronger executive, you can act more quickly. But when you have to go through the deliberate body of it, a bill being introduced in the House, and then it goes to the Senate, then they make changes, and it has to go back to the House and the Senate to approve on the changes, that is slow. And, and, you know, some of these masterminders and, and these big industrial heads didn't like the slowness of the three branches. And so they wanted to be able to infiltrate the executive office and be able to have the president make um, decisions more quickly. And here we have Senator, let's see the next slide, William Fulbright, who has actually created that uh, international fellowship program, the Fulbright Scholars, if you've heard. He was a big admirer, Mr. Senator Fulbright of Woodrow Wilson. And he too said, the president is hobbled in his task of leading the American people to consensus and concerted action by the restrictions of power imposed on him by the constitutional system designed for an 18th century agrarian society far removed from the centers of world power. Okay, so you can see this attack on the relevance uh, of the constitution. And then let's see the next slide. And so in the early 1900s, Theodore Roosevelt, who so many people admire, but he he's a Republican, but he was a progressive. He, um, that he, this doctrine of limited government took on, took an additional hit when he became president because he, he said that he was entitled to do anything except that which the constitution specifically said a president could not do. Now, we know this is the absolute opposite of what our founding fathers uh, wanted. They wanted only limited and carefully defined powers given to the federal government. And if the Constitution didn't address certain issues, then it was not for the go federal government to address. It was to be determined uh, at the state level. And so Theodore Roosevelt completely you know, overshot what the, the founding fathers intended. And so under him began this period of expansionism when we began to acquire new territories, you know, and get involved uh, in, in uh, certain parts of the country. I think we 
Puerto Rico came on and Hawaii and Guam and, and some of these areas. And this idea of a powerful president became very popular, even though it shattered, you know, several of the constitutional chains intended by our founders to limit the powers of the constitution. And it, it meant that the constitution began to be twisted and distorted to mean whatever the political leaders wanted it to mean. Let's see that next slide. So Charles Evans Hughes, who was the chief justice of the Supreme Court during this period, he too chimed in uh, when he said, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judge says it is. Now, our founders wanted the Supreme Court to be the guardians of the law not to start making new law, but you can see how the tide is turning against the constitution. And, and then we have, you know, uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, coming along in the 60s saying uh, the same thing uh, that we needed to have a flexible interpretation of the constitution uh, and, and, and kind of uh, shake it free of some of its uh, uh, 19th century moorings and to view the law as an effective instrument of social policy. Oh, good heavenly days. Where we know this flies in the face, let's see the next slide, of one of the principles from the 5,000 year leap that our founder intended that a free people should be governed by the law, the rule of law, not by the whims of men. So when you have justices beginning to think that the document is irrelevant for our time as well, they begin to rule kind of on the consensus or the feelings of the time or uh, on their opinions instead of their, their whims, instead of the rule of law, which, which uh, you know, will only cause weakening and destruction of, of the government. And so let's see the next slide. And then we have, you know, in the uh, 60s, President Kennedy chiming in where he says, there's, this, there's some feeling I know by a good many Americans that the American constitution, which Gladstone, and Gladstone was, was a, a British statesman, prime minister in the late 1800s, which Gladstone called the most notable work ever struck off by the mind of men. Now, the first hundred years that we lived under our constitution, all the nations were trying to emulate. Remember democracy in America, Alex de Tocqueville came over from France wanting to figure out while we, we were doing so well. So he said, uh, even Gladstone called this the most notable work ever struck off by the mind of man. People think now that gives us an automatic light to the future and it, it guides and clears our way and that all we have to do is follow the very clear precepts it lays down for us. After all, However, the Constitution was written for an entirely different period in our nation's history. It was written under entirely different conditions. So in other words, President Kennedy is saying it just doesn't really fit for the conditions of our time. All right. So we see a, an attack of the founding fathers beginning to happen in the 1900s. There is this massive attack being launched against the Constitution and our founding fathers. And, you know, when it talks about our founding fathers, we're, we're going to have to pledge on their, you know, their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. We certainly saw their honor come under attack at, at this time. As, um, as, you know, this is when they began to promote the whole idea that, oh, Benjamin Franklin, this golden patriot is now a womanizer or George Washington was a racist because he had so many slaves and he was ornery and Thomas Jefferson was you know a sexual pervert because he had 
uh, you know, illegitimate children with his slave, Sally Hemming. And so uh, these attacks, once again, if you can't attack their doctrine, what they gave us, then you attack a person's personality. Because when you think someone is a degenerate, hypocritical, womanizing pervert, you um, you minimize what their teachings, you know, what, what they gave us when they gave us the formation of this nation and gave us the constitution. And so that's how they began to attack. Um, let's see the next um, slide. So there were many people in and out of the government who were feeling like, oh, something is wrong here, all right? So they're, they're not liking these attacks on the constitution or our founding fathers or what they're seeing, you know, in the educational systems and so forth. But they could see that the schools were being uh, utilized, you know, uh, to begin to promote these ideas, all right? That we need a, we need a great reset. Uh, we need kind of a new world order to save this country and to save the world more. We're citizens of a, a global uh, country, global, you know, global citizenry is, is what we began to, start to hear. And so who is responsible for all of this? Let's see that next slide. Well, uh, it primarily began to come in the form of uh, tax exempt foundations. And, and tax exempt foundations were, were uh, made from entities and industries that were incredibly wealthy. In order to get a tax benefit, they would start these foundations and they could hide some of their money. So we're talking Rockefeller or Carnegie. Rockefeller was the oil magnets. Carnegie were the steel magnets. Ford is the automobile. JP Morgan's were the banking and the Vanderbilts. These are all in the early 1900s. And so they began uh, to kind of shape the narrative of history because they wanted, they wanted the government to change for their own self-serving purposes, to begin to eliminate their competition. So if you go to Mount Vernon or you go to Monticello, uh, uh, all, all of these entities are the ones that fund, you know, Colonial Williamsburg. And so they can kind of shape uh, the narrative or the bent uh, on some of history and our founding fathers. And so, you know, by the 1950s, you know, there was enough people in America that did not like this anti-American feel that was going on in the school systems and with our founders. And so in 1952, Congress passed a resolution to set up a committee to investigate these tax exempt foundations. And, um, and the committee was headed by a congressman, Reese, R-E-E-C-E, -E -E, from Tennessee. And what they found were billions of dollars had been spent on tearing down the Constitution and attacking the founding fathers. And the findings of uh, their investigations uh, were to determine uh, whether the foundations or these organizations were using their resources for un-American and subversive activities for political purposes, propaganda, or attempts to influence legislation. And, and they indeed found, found evidence of this. Now, it's very hard to find those Reese reports anymore, but we, um, uh, Cleon Skousen was able to get copies of the Reese report and um, it's hard to find them online, but if I think this little book was like 15 or $17 from Kimber Curriculum, it talks about the systematic attack by some of these master planners to tear down our founders and the findings uh, of this congressional committee. Uh, and so this tax exempt foundation little book, 
Let me see where is it? There it is right here. It's just a small little book. I think it would, if you're interested in that, it it's it, it, I think it would be interesting to, to have on hand. I when I tried to Google it, um, I, it was a hundred dollars <laughs> that I was gonna have to pay. I think this is $18. Uh, and so it's just hard to find the findings of this because it's just kind of been buried. They just want it to kind of go away. But um, anyways, proof that there really was an attack and some of these large entities, you know, fabulously wealthy entities were, were trying uh, to tear down the founders so they could fundamentally shift away from some of the principles in the constitution that which they gave us. Okay, so let's look at the next attack is destroying the balance of power. So right there in Article 1 of the Constitution, Section 3, it says that the Senate of the United States should be composed of two senators from each state chosen by the legislature for a six-year term, all right? And so the founders had assigned the Senate to protect the, the state. So the senators were going to come home every weekend and give an accounting to the state legislature for bills that you know, were being proposed in Washington, DC. And, and is this something that our state wants to uh, support? And so when the 16th amendment came along in 1916, it shattered that check and balance on the, the state. No one is out looking out for the states anymore because it, it declared that um, the senators were going to be now elected by the people, just like the House of Representatives were instead of the state legislatures. And so remember the Senate was supposed to veto any radical um, legislation that would infringe upon the rights of the, the citizens or you know cause an exorbitant amount of funds from the state to have to pay for some of these programs maybe that that legislation was encouraging and so that was all removed so so no one was defending the states anymore when the senators now had to be elected by the people now this is something that most people don't understand because they're like, well, yeah, shouldn't the people elect our elected leaders? But they just don't understand that that check and balance that was removed. That no one is now looking out for the states. That the federal government can uh, swoop in and disregard um, the states because the federal government is getting its money directly from the income tax. They don't need necessarily the budget from the state to you know, keep the government still going because they're directly taxing us. So the 16th and 17th amendments really shattered uh, the checks and balances amongst the, the three branches. Let's see that next um, slide there. And so there we go. The 17th amendment changed elections of senators from state legislature to the popular vote Remember the Senate was supposed to cool any hot-headed imprudent legislation from the House. Remember the, the two-year representatives were supposed to be the wing of compassion. They wanted to quickly solve the problems because they had to get elected every two years. So they wanted to solve problems so they could get reelected. And the wing of resources was supposed to be the Senator asking the tough questions. Wait a minute, does this infringe upon the rights of our citizens? Can our state afford it? Cause we're gonna have to pay for this program. So when you removed, uh, you know, you took the state legislature electing them to the popular vote both the senator and the congressman start acting like the wing of compassion because they that's how you get reelected, right? So the senators now started, uh, you know, it, it takes anywhere from 16 million to 30 to $40 million to get reelected uh, as a senator. And so now those senators, 
uh, are now, you know, wanting to bring more and more goodies home. So they'll be popular amongst their, their people in their state. So they'll get reelected. So they're acting. We have two wings of compassion. So our little eagle is now starting to fly crooked, right, towards tyranny. Uh, and so um, uh, that that is uh, kind of this this idea that, oh yeah, let's keep raising taxes, okay? So we can keep getting more money. So we can keep spending more, spend, spend, spend. So I will get reelected, all right? So this is some of the thinking with our, our uh, members of Congress now. Tax, 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 increase taxing. So we can increase spending. So we can take more goodies home. So that will ensure that I will get reelected. And before that, senators didn't have that concern because senators weren't elected by the people. They were elected by the state legislature, all right? And so we see an attack on the constitution that checks and balances through that 16th and 17th amendment. Okay, let's, let's go on to the next slide. You know, I'm gonna tell you mamas, it took, it took me a long time to really understand, you know, how uh, destructive the 17th, 16th and 17th amendments were and how it superseded parts of the constitution that our founding fathers gave us. The 17th amendment weakened the balance of power between the states and the federal government. Okay, let's see the next slide. So another assault was on uh, the concept of the executive, what our founders meant for the executive branch, okay? I mean, they would probably uh, be horrified to know that within 250 years, the executive branch has become the power center of the world. It is the most powerful political office in the world uh, with all of its agencies. There's 500 agencies under the executive branch and they have lawmaking ability. They were never meant to make law that pertain to everyone in the United States. These regulatory agencies were just supposed to make law uh, pertaining to the operation of, of the executive branch. And so um, uh, remember James Madison said, the powers delegated to the federal government should be few. And he said that the number of the individuals employed in the, under the constitution of the United States will be much smaller than those employed under particular states. And we know that is not the case because it takes a lot of people to run 500 regulatory agencies with 2,600 programs under those agencies. Now, uh, rem and remember with all those agencies comes increased regulation and control they now have. I mean, OSHA can uh, come into a business and completely shut it down You know, uh, in, in your state or the IRS can come into in your home and say, because you haven't paid your taxes, you know, we're gonna garnish your wages or, or take you know, your property, that kind of thing. And so let's see the next slide. Remember the constitution, our founders wanted our president just to be over, um, oh, and I, I would feel like I'm so sorry, Addy, Addy. Uh, male lady comes. This is his way of saying hello to the post office. <laughs> Unless I get up and tell her to stop, she's going to bark just for a moment. I'll just talk a little bit louder. 
I hope you've had a chance to watch this 13 minute little video called the most powerful political office. It's a YouTube video because you, it visually gives you a visual of what happened. We went from the six, you know, duties that the president was supposed to have to him uh, running just a, an incredibly wild, huge organization that one person is completely not qualified uh, to do. So let's see the next slide. So the founders wanted the president to do these six things. Um, to oversee uh, the, we have 320 million of citizens now, to be a commander in chief over the military. We have 1.3 uh, active members in our military million. The chief executive officer of the executive branch of the government to be the chief diplomat in handling foreign relations, uh, which makes me a little worried with our little dear little President Biden overseas, because <laughs> you just never know. You, you, it just seems like he has some lapses in, in a, a comprehension from time to time. And then the chief architect, architect for needed federal legislation. So the White House has lobbyists that go up and say, hey, we would like to propose certain legislation, but then it's up to the House to decide, you know, if they're, if they're going to sponsor legislation that the, the executive branch would like. And then also he used to be the conscience of the nation in granting pardons or reprieves, and this is always controversial, but the president does have the right to do that. Okay, this is, those are the only the six things that uh, the constitution outlines for the president, all right? But this is what, so the president was to enforce the law, the legislative branch is to make the law and the Supreme Court is to guard the law, all right? That's what the founders intended and specified in the constitution. Well, uh, as, as you know, with the 16th, 17th Amendment, as our coffers begin to be, get bigger and uh, more money, and now the senators, uh, you know, aren't beholden to the states, but they're beholden to the people, or they're even beholden to the president of the United States, because he promises goodies and monies to that senator if they will accept and can sell a certain program to the state. Okay, do you see how that works? So let's say this president brings a senator in and says, look, I will give you millions of dollars if your state will accept a common core. So they dangle carrots before the Senate, the senator, and then the senator goes and sells that as like, oh, this is going to be such a wonderful program and I'm bringing it to our state and we will get federal assistance and aid and, and all children will, will get more computers and we'll get la, 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 la. And so the Senator is now beholden to goodies that he can get from the president to offer to his state, which will ensure his reelection. Okay, so can you, can you see how that kind of power uh, only emboldens the executive branch? And to be quite honest with you, the legislative branch has abdicated uh, some of their authority to the executive branch instead of pushing up and pushing back saying you don't have the constitutional right to you know write so many executive orders or or you know make law from the white house uh, but they're intent on trying to get reelected too and so you have all these uh let's see the next slide you have all these agencies now that are have lawmaking authority and uh and then you see um the violation imposed by these restrictive regulatory laws through all these agencies. And, and then we see all the executive orders 
that presidents have begun uh, to, to make law through just, you know, the, the signing of the pen, so to speak. Um, many regulations were thrust upon the public through executive orders directed by the presidents. And these executive orders go into effect after they've been published in the federal registry. So President Biden, in his first 10 weeks in office, he signed 50 executive orders. 22 of the executive orders were direct reversals of Trump's executive orders. So, you know, we like executive orders when our guy is in office, but we don't like him when the other, you know, guy is in office. What I'm saying is it's, it's not at executive orders were not intended to be the supreme law of the land. And, and definitely they were not intended to make law for the national, for the country. Uh, executive orders were to pertain only to the agencies under the president. So there was good uh, operating order within his executive branch. And so it's interesting, um, President Biden last year after Roe v. Wade uh, was overturned, he signed an executive order um, allowing emergency procedures through the Health and Human Services Department, okay, one of his uh, departments and agencies under that department to still uh, allow that, that pill, my, my pristone, myth, myth pristone, uh, that would, um, it was a pill that would end early pregnancies. And so, uh, you know, as, as to rebut and give women an option if they can't actually get the abortion. So he assigned that executive order. Now we know that that went to the courts and it looks like in the, it's at the appellate court and that is gonna be overturned and not allowed. But, um, I, I, I mean, that was in a, um, at the appellate court that oversees Texas. But to be honest with you, states were to determine what they were supposed to do with the abortion. But he, uh, President Biden signed this executive order a year ago saying, oh no, 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 everyone in the country can still have this, this pill. And I believe the constitutionality of that was questioned and it's in the courts now. And so hence we see these executive orders have been abused. President Clinton signed 364 executive orders in the eight years he was in office. Uh, Obama signed 276 executive orders in eight years. President Trump signed 220 <laughs> executive orders. But executive orders are not binding either. They can be overturned when the new guy gets into office. So it's just not a very effective way uh, to, to rule. Um, and so, um, and, and not, not, not the supreme law of the land. And if members of Congress would stand up and push back against, because we know uh, according to the uh, the supremacy clause is the the sixth article. It says the supreme law of the land are is the constitution, the statutes put forth by um, the uh, the legislative branch and treaties. That is the supreme law of the land, not executive orders, not uh, supreme court uh, uh, decisions, uh, uh, law created from the bench. Okay. Okay, so let's see the next slide. So the founders would be shocked. Oh, and, and here we go. Uh, President um, <laughs> Obama in, in 2012, uh, we're talking about, so, so not only executive orders, but there's something called um, executive, uh, let's see, where can I find it here? I'm ahead of myself a little bit. Oh, executive, um, 
I'm trying to find the exact word. U.S. presidents began to strengthen their own positions in world affairs in various summit conferences and going around this whole notion of treaties, making treaties with other countries, which would require two thirds of the Senate to approve a treaty. They are um, uh, entering into agreements called international trade agreements, kind of like executive orders where you can bypass the legislative, legislative branch. And you heard there was a, the hot mic incident in 2012 when President Obama told the president of Russia, he said, look, after the election, I will have more flexibility to work with you, <laughs> is what he said. And no one was, I mean, a president shouldn't be able to do that because any agreement he enters into with a foreign country, uh, it, it would be a treaty and the Senate would have to approve that. But just like this, the, um, the Congress doesn't have to approve executive orders. These international agreements don't have to be approved. And so this is how uh, the executive branch can go around the legislative branch, uh, which, is, which is a problem. And so now we have a president uh, that is, you know, not only doing those six things, but he's also, let's see that next slide, let me see. He's over all the employment, uh, the agriculture, housing, labor, energy resources, welfare, uh, the, the national medical program, Medicaid program, social security, uh, education, uh, overseeing uh, millions of dollars to law enforcement and crime. He's uh, ministers uh, over the health agencies and the environmental issues and energy and, and regulates you know, automobile industries and manufacturing, radio, TV, internet, food and drug. It's just way more than uh, a, a president was ever intended to all these things. Um, uh, and it's caused him to become way more powerful, the most powerful office in the world because of, of, of such. Let's see the next um, slide. Let's see the, the next slide, Tressie. Very good. Okay, so now we're on the assault of the founders intent for the Supreme Court. In many respects, the justices of the Supreme Court restrained themselves for, for many generations, but eventually after the con uh, constitution was put forth, but eventually the temptation to substitute their own wisdom for that of the founders began to be manifested. And just as Jefferson had predicted the court's decision, this, uh, because Jefferson warned that we didn't have enough checks and balances on the Supreme Court. We don't have really any checks and balances on the Supreme Court. And so um, they began to usurp authority over cases coming through the state's courts and they used the 14th amendment Remember the 14th amendment said that, uh, it talks about this equal protection clause and due process against, and it was meant to be against Southern states that didn't accept black citizens as citizens. But, you know, a hundred years later, we, we started to apply the chains of the bill of rights, not only to the federal government, but to the states as well, the courts did. And, and hence we know in 2013, gay marriage came uh, from the 14th Amendment, which said, well, everyone should, should have equal protection to uh, gay marriage because if it's accepted in Massachusetts, it should be accepted in Wyoming. And so they used the 14th Amendment to misapply, you know, issues of the day. And hence, 
Um, we also see the Supreme Court getting involved in coaches in Washington that want to have a prayer on the 50 yard line. And the Supreme Court said, uh, or the court said, no, that's an establishment of religion. And it goes up through the court systems and it should only always have been handled at the state level. And uh, let's see the next slide. And hence, we even have today, we're hearing rumblings, let's see that next slide, of how the 14th Amendment should be the justification for President Biden to be able to raise the debt ceiling. Have you heard that, skirmishes in, in Washington, D.C.? And I, I said, wait a minute, the 14th Amendment gave uh, Black citizens all the rights of white citizens. How are we using the 14th Amendment to justify President Biden to raise the debt ceiling again. So I went to my Making of America, which line by line gives an explanation of, of what it was meant and what the founders meant. And, 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 I, and it's the fourth provision that I'm hearing Democrats say that should be used, should be the means of the president being able to raise the, the debt ceiling. And as I read that, it, it doesn't it doesn't say that at all and because people don't understand the constitution they just go along and go well i guess according to the 14th amendment the president has the right to raise the debt ceiling which is not the case at all that fourth provision in the 14th amendment if you go to it it just says that anyone that helps suppress uh, the uh, the rebellions or the insurrections during the war can be compensated but then it says, but anyone that were, you know, former Confederates, any claims that they have for reparations or debts that they incurred will be void and illegal. And you do not need to pay the Confederate or the insurrectionist bill. So as I read that, I'm like, where in the world do they say from that get the, the justification to raise the debt ceiling according to the 14th Amendment provision for? Because there it is. And so when you don't know the constitution, you just go along because if someone says it's constitutional, you just go, oh, okay, I guess according to the constitution, the president can raise the debt ceiling. Now the debt ceiling started to be raised by President Reagan. President Reagan raised the debt ceiling 18 times, but he had a Congress that went along with it. President Biden does not have the house that is going along with it. This is why they're not allowing him and, and to raise the debt ceiling. And so, you know, legal scholars are saying that the public debt clause, according to the 14th Amendment, the fourth clause, overrides the borrowing limit that is set forth in the Constitution that the founders gave us, you know, in, in Articles 1, I believe it is. And so, uh, and so they say that he's uh, compelled to, to raise it according to the 14th Amendment and even if Congress doesn't lift the limit. So when you don't raise the debt ceiling, uh, then, then the whole problem is, well, we can't, we can't pay our, the salaries anymore of federal employees, or we can't pay the payments to keep the federal buildings open or recipients of social security or Medicare or Medicaid. And so it, it puts us in a tough position. Let's see the next slide. And I think we're gonna talk about the debt in a minute, but the problem is we're over $30 trillion in debt now. And so might we just scale back on all the programs? And I think we're seeing a, a big jump in the debt because of all the outpouring of money during COVID. Now we're, we're the roosters are coming home to roost. And, and so, um, 
President Trump raised the debt ceiling twice. President Obama raised it seven times. And I'm not sure how many times President, President Biden has raised it. But it, it's a common thing. But it's also, is it, our founding father said, it's an immoral thing. The, um, debt is destructive to human freedom, as is uh, subjugation of like, conquest by troops invading our country. Debt is just as destructive. And, and so we just keep, uh, you know, raising the debt ceiling. And now they're using the 14th Amendment as a means to raise it, which is completely a misinterpretation and misapplication of the Constitution. Just something uh, to, to think about. Okay, so let's, let's look at the, um, let's see where we are here. Woo! Okay, we're just going to speed through the assaults on the Supreme Court. Uh, there were four periods of the Supreme Court um, in the beginning. Uh, um, really, I think they they say that it was almost mm, the first fifty years where they the they used the the Constitution and the Federalist Papers and the words of the founders as the exclusive guide to interpreting the cases that came before them. And then from about 1835 to 1895, during the second period, um, they during this time, they relied on constitutional theory, but they weren't quoting the founders of the Federalist paper as much, but they still stuck to the philosophies of the founders. And then the third period from about 1895 to, I guess, the, the mid-1900s, we begin to see this phase uh, replacing constitutional supremacy with judicial uh, supremacy, where the justices are saying, well, the Constitution is what we judges say it is. And then the final period, which we see today, where it's just like, um, they call it in the book, uh, a spectacle of judiciary virtually out of control and seriously in need of restrictive repair by the uh, constitutional amendment. In seminar four, we're gonna talk about a few of these amendments that would repair an out of control uh, executive and an out of control um, judiciary branch. And so um, let's see the next slide. Alexander Hamilton, you know, anticipated or they might've seen a time when some of the branches of the government were warping their channels of authority. And he said, if the federal government should ever overpass the just bounds of its authority and make a tyrannical use of its powers, which we're seeing now in this day and age, the people whose creature it is must appeal to the standard they have formed in the constitution and take such measures to redress the injury to the constitution as the exigency may suggest and prudence justify. So he's saying here, people, you've got to rise up and restore and reinstate that which was given. And we know, you've heard me say, hopefully, that only 15% of the Constitution is broken. 85% is intact. But we have to understand what is broke in order to know how to repair the Constitution. And so hence, we're, we're talking about all these assaults and attacks on various parts of our nation, our founders, and the Constitution today. And lastly, there was an assault on the American monetary system when we were taken off the gold and silver standard. And um, the uh, Federal Reserve uh, um, was created in 1913. Let's see that next slide. And that was just a consortium of these, some of these master planners, these industrial heads and these top leaders in the executive branch. They had a secret 
Let's see that next slide, Tressie. They had a secret meeting uh, on Jekyll Island off of um, the coast of uh, Georgia, and they formed this federal reserve. So they got buy-in from the executive branch and even the Supreme Court, and they were going to take us off the gold and silver standard, and they were going to begin to um, loan out money that wasn't going to be backed by anything. So they were going to pre basically create fiat money. And this is what is going on today. So now our founding fathers wanted the natural program of the supply and demand to, to control the economy and the market. But by removing us uh, from the gold and silver standard, by implementing the 16th and 17th Amendment and that Butler's case all made it possible now for this Federal Reserve that is made up of a consortium of private bankers. There's nothing federal about it and it's not backed by anything. So they're able to loan out money at a greater rate and artificially inflate or deflate the dollar by controlling interest rates, all right, with the help of tax policy. And, and so they could lower the rates and create a boom where everyone wants to buy when the interest rates are low and people spend, spend, spend. And then they can raise the rates and create a bust and call in the loans and control people and make money. So it's called the, the boom and bust cycle, if you understand uh, principles of economics. So you know the Tuttle Twins, these cute little children's books that kind of break down you know, difficult ideas. I, uh, I, I would really recommend there's a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island that talks about the secret meeting in 2011 and the formation of the Federal Reserve and the sinister motives, self-serving motives behind the Federal Reserve. But the little creature from Jekyll Island breaks it down. <laughs> That's how I read the children's version of things, but I, I understand them enough. And so I would recommend understanding and reading uh, uh, certainly the children's book to understand the attack on the monetary system and how the 16th and 17th amendment played into that. Uh, and so I think we're just gonna skip on over to the very last part, the attack um, on the interstate commerce that the, the constitution uh, implied that, that states should have the right, let's skip on over, well, let's just go to full view, Tressie that the constitution says that the federal government should be able to monitor um, commerce within the states. So the, like the Southern states, because they don't like some of the Northern states wouldn't sell them any cotton. They, so they said that, that the federal government could oversee that there was fair commerce and movement of goods and services. But through the years, uh, they, um, they distorted this provision, this commerce clause. And instead of uh, you know, getting involved amongst the states or getting involved within the states, commerce and and hence you begin to see you know Obamacare being mandated all states and businesses have to provide health care or we begin to see mask mandates or vaccine mandates so the government is getting involved directly in states which was an attack on the founders philosophy of this idea of um, the founders overseeing interstate commerce amongst the states not within the states and so there you have it, mamas. Woo, that is, that is a mouthful. That is a lot to comprehend. Now, I have to tell you, there's 18 pages in this week's study. So I just gave you an overview. So I really would recommend going through and reading it, filling in the blanks. Can you see why I really think that we should all go through the Healing of America seminar every year just to bonus up on it? Because it's 
it's a lot of information. It's like reading the Bible one time in your life. It's just not going to stick. You have to be constantly studying the word. You have to be constantly studying history to know how we've gone wrong and what we can do to be a part of the solution and repairing it. So we talked about the attacks on the relevance of the Constitution, the attacks on our founders. There are no good dirty dogs. The uh, destroying the balance of power when the 16th and 17th Amendments came along and the 14th Amendment began to be misused and the Butler case in 1936 said, hey, you, you can use that general welfare clause to, to help out any specific problems in the country. And we began to see the assault of the, of the founding fathers concept for the executive branch, how it went from here to here, and also the assault on the founding fathers intent for the Supreme Court. And hence, this is uh, the reasons why our country is looking at, uh, and, and, and looking like it is today. And then of course the attacks on the education and the morality and we see all this moral decay in all of our children, you know, uh, not all of them, but you know, young people thinking they're entitled and that, you know, this is the worst form of uh, government in the world. We're the most abusive country in the world kind of thing. And so when you begin to understand how it all came to be, then you go, okay, all right, I can see why we're in the boat that we are and we can better appreciate uh, and understand what it's going to take now to heal it. It's not meant for us to get all depressed and eat our chocolates and lose hope because I've heard, you've heard me say this before, God did not establish this first free society in modern times to see it collapse into oblivion. Let's see that next slide because I love it. I love this verse. He will heal our land and it will be mamas like you who are showing up today, who are willing to put in the effort to try and figure out why we're in the mess that we are. As we show up and continue to learn, let's see that second Chronicles 714 slide, Tressie. God will heal our land. He's told us that, that if we will turn to him and repent and seek his face and humble ourselves, he will heal our land. And as we continue to stand up and push back and learn and teach within our sphere of influence, it will justify the heavens to intervene and to heal our land. And a healed constitution is one of the tools that he will use to heal our land. So enough of us have to understand how it got broke and be a part of repairing or restoring or reinstating you know, what our founders gave us so we can heal our land. And so lastly, this is why we're here. This is why we turn to God when something looks almost insurmountable, because uh, we know as we study the word that God is a God of miracles. Let's see that last slide, Tressie, that as we as we look to God for our freedoms and not government to bail us out, because we know that God works through small means to bring about his purposes. And there's just a ton of miraculous stories in the word that, that shows how God works. Then as we, as we learn and study you know, his ways, then our confidence in him uh, arises. And, and we're not so dependent on our government telling us how to deliver us from our problems. And then as we you know, take our children and our grandchildren to God and we keep that family close and we teach them not only godly principle, but we teach them principles of freedom, principles of the constitution and, and what our founding fathers intended. And then they can rise up and be on that front line and be a part of the solution of 
you, you know, holding the line. And as you know, you get enough people doing those first three things, then they're going to be open to, you know, the personal revelation that God puts on your heart. What should I do? What should I do in my home to shore up the people that I love the most? Is there something I can do out in my community, in my school systems, in my uh, city councils? Is there something I can do with my state legislators? Should I run for office? Should I help uh, the, you know, the campaign of a good man or godly man or woman that are running for office? God will put on your heart. And enough of us doing this justifies the heaven to intervene. All right. So I just always love, I hope you memorize these four points and you talk about them because it helps create a vision that we're going to be okay, but we got to do something and we got to mostly turn to God. And then God will line upon line, reveal to our hearts, you know, how these things will look in our life. So lastly, next week, we just have one more week of problems, the attack of America's role in the world. And that is fascinating because we're going to talk about all the the George Soros's of the world. And before there was a George Soros, there were other dudes in the early history. And so we're gonna see some of these kind of secret organizations and groups that have taken place and are very powerful and they're very real and they're very much a part of this one world order. I mean, this is not just some conspiracy theory and we will study these groups and what they look like. Mm -hmm.